Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. At the age of 29, Jeanette Johnson was a mother of two living in Kankakee, Illinois. She was described as a force to be reckoned with and always put others first. On the evening of August 2, 1985, Jeanette had gone out to the party house bar in the 800 block of North Wildwood Avenue with some friends. After returning home to the 600 block of East Oak Street, she parked her car behind her house. Her niece and 11-year-old daughter, Jaretha, saw her park the car, get out, lock the doors, and head toward the house. Jaretha then pretended to be asleep as her mother put the keys in the door. Strangely, when everyone woke the next morning, Jeanette was nowhere to be found. There was also no sign that she even entered the house. Jaretha, now worried, called her mother's workplace and grandmother, but still, there were no signs of Jeanette. After being reported missing, investigators found her car parked on the street out front instead of behind the house. Upon searching inside the car, they found a cigarette in the ashtray, her coat, and purse, and the driver's side window partially rolled down. A few months later, in late 1985, human remains were found in eastern Kankakee County, but at the time, they could not be identified. 35 years later, in November 2020, using DNA from Jeanette's family members, the remains were identified as belonging to Jeanette. Her case officially became a homicide investigation, and in May 2022, her family was finally able to lay her to rest. Jaretha continues to seek justice for her mother, but as of August 2023, no one has ever been arrested, and this case remains unsolved. At the age of 20, Kaylin Pryor lived in Evanston, Illinois, and was a talented model and athlete. Those who knew her well described her as an amazing friend and an all-around good person. In 2013, Kaylin graduated from Evanston Township High School as a track star and cheerleader. She then went on to Robert Morris College to study paralegal, hoping one day to become a lawyer. One day, Kaylin entered the Mario Make Me a Model competition held by Mario Tricocci Hair Salons and Day Spas and competed against 500 other aspiring models over several months. Ultimately, she won the competition, beating out the other 500 models. The win was highly publicized and led to her being considered a rising star in the modeling world. Before this, Kaylin had only thought of modeling as a way to pay for her school. However, after winning, she now considered modeling to be a potential career. Sadly, on November 2, 2015, all that would change. Kaylin had just signed on with the Factor Women Model Agency and was getting ready for an interview with Victoria's Secret when tragedy would strike. After leaving her grandmother's home in Inglewood, she was on her way to the bus stop in the 7300 block of South May Street, hoping to catch the bus to her home in Evanston. 
At about 6.20 p.m., a dark-colored SUV passing by opened fire, striking both Kaylin and a 15-year-old boy who was standing nearby. Sadly, Kaylin would not survive her injuries, and the boy was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. Ironically, Kaylin had recently modeled for an anti-violence campaign and even wrote poetry about the issues with violence in the Southside neighborhood where her grandmother lived. In 2017, a reward leading to the arrest in the cold case was raised to $30,000. Six years after her murder, a street sign was dedicated in her name at 74th and South May Streets. Her father, Alan Scott, said the sign would force people who walk or drive by it to Google his daughter's name to learn about who she was. Sadly, her father had moved the family from Inglewood to Evanston about 20 years earlier to protect his children from the violence on the South Side. Investigators don't believe that Kaylin was the intended target, but instead was just an innocent bystander. However, as of August 2023, no one has ever been arrested for Kaylin's murder, and this case remains unsolved. On Saturday, February 2, 2008, just before 11 a.m., tragedy would strike a Lane Bryant clothing outlet in the Brookside Marketplace in Tinley Park, Illinois, near Chicago. Rhoda McFarland was the store manager, and she had opened the store just minutes before a man posing as a delivery worker walked in. There were a total of six women in the store at the time, four customers, a part-time employee, and Rhoda. The man was there to rob the store armed with a gun. After entering, he herded the women to a back room where he tied them up. He then proceeded to fatally shoot each person one by one. The four customers, Jennifer Bishop, Carrie Chiuso, Connie Woolfolk, and Sarah Zazfransky were all killed instantly, as well as the store manager, Rhoda. However, the bullet intended for the part-time employee only grazed her neck. Before the murders, when the robbery first began, Rhoda made a call to 911. On that call, you can hear Rhoda's voice and the muffled voice of the murderer. 911 emergency. Like Stay on the line. Stay on the line. Let me get you to Tinley Park. Don't hang up. Within two minutes of the call, the first officer arrived, but the suspect had already fled the scene. A massive search ensued with the use of a helicopter and canines, but the suspect was never found. They had even stopped the city buses, thinking the shooter might be hiding on one, but he was still nowhere to be found. They finally concluded that he most likely fled on Interstate 80, southwest of downtown Chicago. Investigators initially withheld the fact that a sixth woman was shot and survived, likely to protect her. She was then able to give the police a description of the suspect, allowing them to create a sketch. The surviving victim described the suspect as a black man with his hair in cornrows, standing about 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighing around 260 pounds. While the store was not equipped with a security camera, there was one at the Target store across the street. It captured some footage of the front of the Lane Bryant store, and right around the time of the shootings, two vehicles pulled up, an SUV and a sedan. Investigators believe the shooter had accomplices because the two vehicles pulled up at the same time and left at the same time. 
An officer was in the nearby Target parking lot when the shooting went down. And when dispatchers received the 911 call, they notified the officer at Target, who was only a minute or two away. However, by the time he arrived, the shooter had already fled the scene with a measly $200. On February 6, 2008, Lane Bryant announced the establishment of the Lane Bryant Tinley Park Memorial Fund in honor of the five women who were killed. Lane Bryant also offered to pay for the victims' funerals. They then offered up to a $100,000 reward for information that would lead to the gunman's arrest. On February 11, 2008, police released a sketch of the suspect, and within 24 hours, they received a couple dozen leads. However, none would lead to the actual killer, and all these years later, the number of tips has totaled around 7,500. The store building remained unused until November 2013 when TJ Maxx moved in. In 2018, Michigan State Police helped create a 3D version of the original sketch of the suspected gunman. Authorities used facial identification technology to make the initial sketches of the suspect more lifelike. In February 2023, two women who worked at the store explained how they happened to stay out of harm's way that morning. Cousins Laura and Laurie both worked part-time at the store, and Laurie had called in the day before because her 13-year-old son had surgery and was running a fever of 106 degrees. While in the hospital with her son, she saw the report on the TV. She was supposed to go to work that day and catch a ride from her cousin, but Laura went to a hair appointment instead of picking Laurie up. It was at the hair appointment that Laurie learned of the shooting. As of August 2023, the shooter has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Ryan Lewis Livingston was born on October 29, 1983, to Richard and Denise Livingston in Franklin County, Illinois. At the age of 22, Ryan lived in Carbondale, Illinois, and was the father of a daughter named Hannah. On the evening of July 13, 2006, Ryan attended an outdoor concert at SIUC's Shriok Auditorium. Around 9 p.m., he received a ride to a friend's house on East Park Street, where he stayed for about 20 minutes. He then began walking to his brother Randy's house in the 600 block of North Oakland Avenue, roughly three miles away. During his walk, between 10 and 10.30 p.m., two males approached him on West Walnut Street, also known as Highway 13 East, most likely attempting to rob him. Investigators believe Ryan tried to resist the suspect, leaving him stabbed and bleeding to death. When Ryan failed to show up at his brother's house, Randy called his cell phone and it rang and rang before he finally answered. That's when he told his brother that he had been beaten and stabbed on Route 13. Ryan then faded off, most likely from all the blood loss. Randy then immediately called 911 at 10.38 p.m., but he could not give the dispatcher his brother's exact location, only that he was somewhere on Highway 13. He then went out looking for him and notified their mother. The first officer found Ryan 14 minutes later at 10.52 p.m. lying on the sidewalk near the curb in front of 317 West Walnut Street. A few minutes before, witnesses across the street had seen Ryan in distress and called 911, helping the officer locate him. When the officer found him, he had lost a lot of blood and was going in and out of consciousness. 
By that time, he was only able to give a brief description of his attackers. He said one was black and wore a hat turned backwards, and the other was also black, but had a light complexion. He also said he didn't know either of the men. The police canvassed the area and searched for clues. They collected forensic evidence at the scene, but have never said what that evidence is. Ryan was rushed to the hospital and sadly passed away a few hours later. Interestingly, there were other similar crimes in the area at the time of Ryan's murder. A few months earlier, on March 31, 2006, two men, similar to the description of Ryan's attackers, robbed a Jimmy John's delivery driver while he was making his delivery in the 400 block of West Monroe Street. One of the suspects carried a gun while the other had a knife. The men were between 18 and 22 years old, 5 feet 8 inches to 6 feet tall, and wore dark colored coats with hoods. One also wore a red mask to conceal his identity. On July 21, 2006, a week after Ryan's murder, two men robbed a couple while they were walking on Cherry Street. The men stole the woman's purse, the man's wallet, and their cell phones. Many believe the robberies are connected to Ryan's murder as they occurred in the same general area with a similar M.O. The police investigated the possible connections but have found no evidence to link them. On October 3, 2007, the Carbondale Police Department received a typewritten letter dated September 2007 from a woman known only as Elizabeth who provided specific details about Ryan's murder that the police never publicly released. Elizabeth said to put an ad in the Southern Illinoisan if the information provided was helpful, which authorities did three times. However, they never heard from Elizabeth again and have never been able to track her down. According to Ryan's mother, there is a primary suspect in the case, and he is currently in prison for stabbing another person in the chest. His name is Jonathan Schaffner, and he was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the attempted murder. According to his inmate records, he could get parole as early as June 2024. If this man is involved in Ryan's murder, hopefully the police can find the evidence to keep him behind bars for good. However, as of August 2023, no suspects have ever been arrested for Ryan's murder and this case remains unsolved. Sherry Lewis and her twin sister, Terry, were born on April 7, 1964. At the age of 30, Sherry was a successful and much-loved local realtor in her hometown of Decatur, Illinois. She and her sister were said to have such a strong bond that they could finish each other's sentences. On Friday afternoon, August 5, 1994, Sherry planned to meet with her twin, Terry, and other family members at the annual Decatur Celebration Festival. She told her family that she was showing a vacant house on Finch Drive, a dead-end road in northeast Decatur, to three prospective buyers who were all men. Unfortunately, Sherry would never arrive at the festival that day. Her family became concerned and tried calling Sherry's phone, but there was no answer. Once her family was back home, the police arrived before midnight and delivered the worst news of their life. Sherry was found beaten and strangled to death at the vacant home she was showing on Finch Drive. Her body was found by the son of the owner of the property around 8 p.m. that night. When he noticed her car still in the driveway, he decided to go inside, and that's when he discovered her body in the kitchen. 
During the investigation, Sherry's appointment book held the names of three men scribbled next to the time slot 1 p.m. All three men were investigated, but none of them have ever been charged. A co-worker of Sherry said that Sherry received the call to see that listing the night before she was murdered. The police would obtain the office phone records and determine that Sherry was on a call at 6.11 p.m. with the local hardware store where the name of one of the people in her appointment book worked. This is where things get a little strange. The police claimed that while they could subpoena Sherry's phone records, they could not do the same with the suspects. Also, the sheriff went on TV and claimed there was no reason for Sherry to be at the vacant house, even though there was evidence of the appointments in her appointment book. After hearing this, Sherry's dad went down to the sheriff's office and questioned him about why he was unaware of the information the investigators had. He then scolded him for going on TV without knowing all the facts of the case. At one point, investigators began to focus their attention on a man who was in jail in another Illinois county on an unrelated charge. It's unclear if the man is still considered a suspect, but Sherry's family no longer believes he's responsible for her death. In 1996, the Association of Realtors, who put up $10,625 for a reward, decided to withdraw the money, much to the dismay of her family. As for her twin sister, Terry, she said that when Sherry was murdered, that a piece of her died. Unfortunately, as of August 2023, no one has ever been arrested for Sherry's murder, and this case remains unsolved. Consider this last one a bonus case, because while it didn't occur in Illinois, the guy was a native of the state. Enjoy! Albert Edwin Seberg was born on March 4, 1926, in Chicago, Illinois. Sadly, on October 7, 1935, his father died in the historic Glidden Factory explosion in Chicago. His father's death inspired Albert to follow in his dad's footsteps and become an engineer. He would first enlist in the U.S. Navy, where he served as an aircraft mechanic at the Naval Air Station in DeLand, Florida. He also served in World War II from October 5, 1944 to July 20, 1946. After being discharged, he enrolled at the University of Illinois, but at some point changed colleges and ended up at the University of Denver. In 1954, he graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Engineering. Albert would then have a very successful career, and in the late 1950s, he helped construct the first nuclear power plant in Dresden, Illinois. He remained active even after his 1986 retirement and worked on the remodeling of the Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. He loved his family, especially his nieces and nephews, who referred to him as Uncle Al. He also loved to travel and often took trips alone to visit his loved ones. On September 4, 1997, 71-year-old Albert left his home in Elmhurst, Illinois, heading for Florida. The purpose of the trip was to tie up some loose financial ends for a family member that had recently passed. On the way, he stopped at the Best Inn, which is now a quality inn on North Monroe Street in Tallahassee, for the night. At 9 p.m. that evening, he was found shot in his room and rushed to Tallahassee Memorial Regional Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead. 
Witnesses told police that two men were casing the motel by driving in and out of the parking lot during the day and eventually parked across the street from the motel. The car was a mid-80s Honda Accord with a Mississippi license plate. Both men were young, maybe in their 20s, with blonde shoulder-length hair. A sketch was created of one of the two men who may have been involved in the suspected botched robbery that left Albert dead. As of August 2023, the suspects have never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.